You're listening to the Fade to Gray Network. We invite people of all backgrounds to share their stories, their nuanced conversations, and forward thinking, and not taking ourselves too seriously. Everyone's story matters. Every voice is important. Life is polarizing, but not everything is black and white. Come join us as we fade to gray. Okay, welcome back to another episode of Fade to Gray. And it's the health series that we're doing, you guys. Hope you're enjoying it. We've had some real quality guests and quality content so far. I've been kind of blown away. And hopefully here we go again today because we have Jed Payne in the house. And uh, he's a a friend of the family. Uh, This is probably like, what, the third or fourth time you've been on a Fade to Gray episode? I think third. Right on. Well, it's... uh, I think that's a record. Is it? Yeah. Nice. I think so. Yeah, I think MVP. So Yeah. We like you, so I'm glad you're here. <laughs> Even though our teams are playing each other today, uh, it's Sunday and the Panthers are playing the Saints. And I know some people right now are already bored with with the podcast, but don't worry, we're not gonna talk about football. Um, <laughs> and may I just but, say as a non as a non sports person, uh, major props to both Omar and Jed today are coming on to this call right now as both of their teams duel it out tied in, what, is it the fourth quarter? Yeah. Yep, it is the fourth, fourth quarter. Fourth I'm quarter. watching out of the corner of my eye. I mean, it's do or die. Tied. It's do or die for my team right now, too. So, and I mean, they're if we lo- podcasting, everyone. This is called dedication to the art form. So let's just give them some, some props here because I know this is not easy. So it's not the Panthers are going to lose this, so it's all good. <laughs> well, you can hear on the call we have Seth. Obviously, say hi, Seth. We already heard your voice. What's up? You've heard me, Elizabeth. <laughs> hey, hey. Yeah, she's on this one, and we have Jed. And so, yep. Today we're going to be talking mental health, um, as far as the health series go, and like really spotlight the the area of addiction and recovery. Um, we'll hear um, a little bit of Jed's story. Um, if you want to hear more, obviously, he has his own podcast called The Church and Other Drugs. He is um, five years sober at this point and been a drug and alcohol counselor for two and a half years. And so we'll get to hear a little more about that. And obviously, we have our resident shrink with Seth and um you know, we have Elizabeth to talk about, you know, depression and all the different things that are um, connected with um, getting clean and staying sober. So, all right, here we go. I'm very glad to have you, Jed. Oh, yeah. Jed, I really am honored to have you back on the podcast. Um, and each time that you're on, I, I feel like we've talked about different things. And this topic that we're going to discuss today is very important to me personally. Um, I've gone through my own path of mental health concerns and substance abuse. Um, and so I'm, I'm really honored to be able to talk with you about this today. G- since you have been a substance abuse counselor for two and a half years and you've been sober for five, tell us a little bit about your story. I kind of want to know how you got to where you are today and providing the type of assistance and help to people who are struggling. So tell us. Uh, tell us your story. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll have to. It'll have to be sort of truncated, right? Because of course, it's extremely long. Um, in kind of a nutshell, I mean, I started um, started smoking cigarettes first. Uh, cigarettes are the real gateway drug. If there is such a thing, I would thoroughly contend that cigarettes are that. Um, started smoking weed early on and then, um, my parents started drug, I got caught for weed. So they started drug testing me, but this was like the advent of the internet age. So I just started researching things that wouldn't show up on a drug test. This is kind of irony how like intervention turned, like kind of made it worse because then I just started doing, um, like Benadryl and cough medicine. So I had my first overdose on Benadryl. Robo tripping then, huh? Yes. 15? Absolutely. That was my Yeah. An overdose an overdose choice. Like I can yeah. see I can see like starting to engage like those things, but an overdose is pretty serious. At that. Well, and it was so it was 
it wasn't it was an overdose in that I was like Benadryl is a deliriant so it's like a it's it's hallucinations that you have no idea are fake it would it's basically like I'd be talking to you except you're not there it's like the only true drug I've done where it's like it's complete detachment from reality. So it wasn't that like I like was uh, in danger of dying. I was just completely gone and my parents had no idea what I was on. I, I wasn't able to tell them what I was on either. So they took me to the hospital. Um, I just want to say probably that's a, a good decision. Kids stay yes. away from that. It's one of the worst trips I've ever done. I did it once. And I'll never forget, like, uh, you know, it was obviously a Robitussin, and it's over-the-counter stuff, you know, and you pretty much have to down an entire bottle, and then it I ended up, you know, yakking it back out in the parking lot of, I believe it was a Wendy's, and uh, wasn't feeling right at all. I ended up going to a friend's house who I've never been to, ended up in the bathroom, like, right away, uh, you know, just, I think, coming out both ends. And then by the time it was all said and done, I look up at the wallpaper and it was just moving. And I'd never been to this house before in my life. And so it just a horrible, yeah. horrible experience. So That sounds terrifying. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real deal thing, too. So, yeah, and, like, uh, the stuff that's in cough medicine is dextromethorphan. And that um, PCP and ketamine are all sister drugs in the dissociative anesthetic class. So it's actually, like... It's an extremely strong chemical. Um, anyway, though, so that's how I wound up in my first... Uh, back then, I went to outpatient treatment. And outpatient adolescent treatment um, didn't... I, it didn't take it seriously. Well, I took it, I guess, as seriously as I could at 15 with, like, no real consequences yet. Was Are we talking outpatient, like, once a week? Or are we talking, like, IOP, intensive outpatient? IOP. Like three yep. to five times. It, it was <laughs> to my poor father. It was at the hospital that he worked at too. Oh, so, yeah. So that I'm sure in retrospect, that must've been horribly, horribly embarrassing for him. So is your dad um, a doctor then? No, he does human resources. Okay. Fair enough. I never it's knew that your dad worked at the hospital. Yeah. Well, back then he did. Yeah. He did uh, human resources for hospitals for years. Um, and I would often end up at those hospitals, so it was, must have been kind of tough for them. But, um, <laughs> so that was kind of my first introduction to, so, and before that, like I had, uh, since we're talking about mental health, I had, um, I've always had mental health issues and I got diagnosed with Tourette syndrome when I was 11 I was before that it was like generalized anxiety and like separation anxiety, uh, not much depression yet. But then I got my anxiety manifested in facial tics really bad, um, which I then got made fun of for, which then compounded the anxiety and all that. So I had like a perfect storm of mental health stuff. And when I finally discovered drugs, it really did like relieve that um, at first. So... That's the trick. Yeah. So I, I, what's that? That's the trick with drugs is that mm-hmm. they are effective. Yes. They do. Extremely. They, they work. They at do. First. They do work initially, mm-hmm. but not in the long term. Right. And then eventually they start creating the symptoms that you wanted to cure in the first place. But so I had always been familiar with um, doctors and I'd been, man, I think I went to a therapist when I was like, eight, nine, ten, somewhere around around there, like really young. So I'd been in that kind of world of of diagnoses and medicine and all that sort of stuff. Um, So then I started going to treatment and I got out of that treatment. And of course, things just escalated, Um, started doing harder and harder drugs. And at first it was really, I sought it out. I was really into... Which, which I kind of figured out. I guess it was a natural extension of like my childhood because I was the kind of kid that I would go see a movie like Power Rangers or something. And then for that week, I would pretend to be a Power Ranger, right? And I was very into like identity swapping and like that was how I played. And so when I got into high school, I got into like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and started listening to Modest Mouse. And so I got into that culture and that's, you know, looking back, that's kind of what I did was then I just started 
playing that really, but I was actually doing drugs. So like, I really, I had no idea what I was messing with at first. Um, I thought I did and I thought it was fun and cool and I idolized like I'm a, an artist and a creative and I thought it, you know, I make better art and I can write better and all those, you know, kind of lies that you fall for, which I mean, I guess you can make good art on it, but it's not better or worse or whatever. Um, so I kind of do like purposely sought out drugs and, um, let me interrupt you real yeah. quick, Jed, and say I, yeah. I agree because you've been clean for five years, and this is my opportunity just to plug you and say you, you do make amazing art. Uh, if you yeah, if you don't follow you. Jed on Instagram or Facebook, you, you know you should. If you haven't seen any of the stuff he does at Comic-Con, um, a lot of it's uh, – I don't know what kind of base paint it is, but um, maybe talk a little bit about that for just for a second and then keep telling your story. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, jed.i.am on Instagram. Uh, Me and my wife do stuff. I just do a ton of, like, pop culture art and painting and drawing and digital media and stuff like that. Um, And it is, yeah, I'm, turns out I am much better sober. I've looked at my art when I was, uh, especially on meth, and it's horrible. (laughs) I thought it was so good, too, and it was, like... Why didn't anybody tell me it was so awful? That's the thing um, about meth. It seems like everybody's, it's like the problem's with everybody else. It's not with you, not with me. You know, it's yeah, like, I, exactly. I'm afraid everybody else is wrong. But Yeah, like full tilt mania. Um, so basically, though, it things got worse um, to the point when I was a senior in high school. Um, things were bad enough that I needed to go to an inpatient treatment center, and I got put on a waiting list, and... During that time, I was like, well, I'm going to have to quit drugs, so I better... Um, I literally, and I have my old journal. Um, I wonder if I have it. So I have an old... Uh, I had a checklist of drugs that I had done. Like, that's like what... Like, that's in, uh, a view into, like, my mind and, like, how serious I, wow. I thought Wow, at least you are organized about it. Yeah, but it it was like my, uh, it was, you know, like my uh, bragging rights or whatever it was. Um, Wow. But I was like, I've never done heroin, so I need to try that before I go to rehab, right? That the logic tracks on that. Um, So (laughs) I I did, and my plan was I'm only going to snort it. um, And then the people I got it from, uh, they're like, why don't you just shoot it? And apparently that was all it took. And I was like, okay, well, you'll have to do it for me. Um, and they did, and, and that was a wrap on that, you know, fell in love with that as anyone would if they, you know, if that's, <laughs> turns out it's addictive because it's crazy addictive, right? I, um, was, no, go ahead. I was in a, like, a educational breakout session in, uh, at my old job, uh, where I had to go to this training and they did a talk on heroin to where like, at the greatest pleasure centers of our brain, like what we can imagine, like on a scale of like one to 10. Okay. Sex is like a 10, but when you're on heroin, it's like 44,000 of those, um, that it is so beyond it hits every pleasure center in the brain, um, in a, in such a way that it's unlike anything a person can experience. So, when a person does heroin, that's the whole problem is that it's, it's too good or something like that. I, I don't, it's been a, a couple of years, but, um, I just remember a talk on that. And I was thinking of that as you were talking about heroin. I was always able to yeah, stay away it, from it because it killed all my heroes growing up. And so I was just like, see, to- I was the opposite. See, if you couple that with, uh, I, I've been suicidal also for as long as I can remember. Um, the good die so young then, then is your health. Yeah. yeah. Then it becomes, yeah. The whole, the motto for my crew back then was like, um, what was it? Live fast, die young, leave a pretty corpse. Like my friend had that tattooed on his knuckle. The, the, um, that's a lot to have tattooed on your, I mean, he had big hands. No, well, he had a, <laughs> what was it? L he had look good, die young or like L whatever the abbreviations on both his hands. However it fits. Fact check me on that. But, <laughs> Yeah, that was the whole thing. I was like, I didn't plan on living past 21. Like, I didn't want to. I resented my dad for having a stable job. I thought that shit was for the birds, all that sort of stuff. All the the, the trappings of youth, right? And I thought that was stupid. And um, I didn't want any of it. And I assumed I was going to die young anyway. 
And because of my Christianity, I assumed I'd just go to heaven, you know? So that, like, literally, this was my thinking. It was like, I'm just, I'm tired of this. Let's just move on to the next I mean, thing. it seems like you're rebellion. Um, I mean, have you had a chance to, like, really, like, you know, since you've gotten older looking back, do you know what you're rebelling from? I mean, or do you think it was just natural curiosity? Was it not rebellion at all? No, it probably, it, it was, like, if anything, it was like the classic suburban white kid rebellion. Like, <laughs> you know, I had no, I mean, you know, what I, that is like a thing. It's like there's, I had no real conflict or problems growing. I mean, I did, but no real, um, it was almost like I made my own shitty reasons to get high over. It's like I didn't really have any good reasons, but I, I damn sure did by the end of it um but no it was i don't know it was like i didn't really have a cause so i guess i kind of made one you know okay i don't know yeah i've always wondered that and like why i I did have this fierce resentment toward my my dad especially and it really was like out of nowhere Mm. i don't know it's just weird yeah just wondering because you know you're at the Um, age now you're you know raising kids or i i am you know, and it seems like, you know, he wasn't doing anything wrong. And so it's just like you said, is it just no, like that, not at all. that natural just wanting to create conflict when there's no conflict? There needs to be some sort of struggle. So I don't know. I think so. I think so. I mean, it's a mix of like boredom and wanting more out of my life and wanting something exciting. And, you know, I loved movies so much. I wanted a life like that. And I was too okay naive to understand that, like, that's not how things work. And, thinking I wanted something that in reality is something unimaginably horrible and like the real it's yeah I've I really fell for the romantic idea of addiction and alcoholism and all that stuff so it may actually be a problem like the reality so our churches were corrected it was like entertainment we can blame the movies you saw it on the movies so (laughs) yeah I'm sure a little bit I'm sure you know very susceptible mind. Um, so then, you know, that just started, um, you know, I was living in South Carolina at the time and they sent me to a treatment center in Louisiana when I was 17. And, um, that just started like from then I never went back home. Um, we tried, uh, like what would happen was I would get, um, periods of sobriety um after treatment centers and then i would relapse and my parents would call the treatment center and be like what do we do and send them back to treatment and so i just got stuck in this kind of um washing machine of institutionalization uh for years just never like we would try um i think i tried to go live with my parents like one other time and it just never worked and the problem was i guess some people I was also just the, the way I would use like was so extreme and the things that would happen, like, um, for example, there was a huge period in my life. Like one time I got six months sober and then I broke, I started taking up skateboarding and I broke my arm really bad. Uh, and this was in Florida back in the heyday of, uh, crooked doctors in Florida, which was crazy. Um, so I got back on pain pills and, uh, Xanax. That was when I first got involved in that and went on the most ridiculous bender. And I started self injuring myself. I gave myself a third degree burn on my hand. Like what I would do was, um, I would either hit my formerly broken arm like I would hold it in a door and slam the door on my arm and then go to the emergency room and tell them I fell on Dang. it or something and they give me more pain pills one time I brewed a pot of coffee and just immediately dumped it on my hand and drove to the emergency room but by the time I got there my hand was like it had cooled down and it wasn't red and I remember sitting outside the emergency room like what am I gonna do and I just took out a big lighter and just cooked the underside of my hand like to almost to the muscle. And then I would just take my hand to, um, I would drive to different cities and go to the urgent cares and just get pain pills. And the, like I had cleaned it with, I was living, 
I was homeless living in um, hotel rooms and I'd just been like cleaning it in the sink and putting tissue paper on it. And I remember a piece of tissue paper had started growing into my skin. And the last doctor I took my hand to, he was like, I'm not giving you pain pills and I might have to cut your hand off. And I was like, come again? Like what? What are you talking about? And he was like, yeah, this is ungodly infected. <laughs> like, and I'm, you know, I guess he knew what I was doing. So that was essentially uh, the type of drug addict I was like unstoppable force of nature like I must get high at all costs um and then I was also a chronic overdoser um so I ended up overdosing eight times eight hospitalized overdoses I the worst of which I was in a coma for four days um was I had vertigo for like seven months after that they had told my mom that if he wakes up, he's going to have severe brain damage and all this sorts of things. Um, which, you know, that's where I also get my, uh, serious faith in God and like lack of faith in doctors. Like that really was kind of, uh, <laughs> some miraculous things happen. Cause so many of my, and it always made me beg the question of like, why am I still here? Cause I've lost so many friends to like much less extreme circumstances as far as drugs go. And I always had to wonder like, so why, you know, why am I still here? What, you know, kind of some survivor's guilt with that. But, um, it kind of, you think that became is kind of, you that? think that's why you do what you do now Be- because yeah. of the survivor's guilt or a lot, a big part of it. Well, not so sur- well, because I mean that turned into, Oh, okay. Maybe it's for a reason because it, it seemed to become apparent that, in, in my mind, or at least how I believe, God was not satisfied with letting me just be a drug addict because it would seem like I couldn't use successfully without these... Even when I would try, I would still wake up in a hospital and just be like, well, shit, like what happened, you know? Um, it was like I was getting... I kept getting stopped by either the police, um, paramedics friends um it, it sounds so it was like i was fighting against the tide really it sounds like the whole experience definitely strengthened your faith uh, how was your it how did. was your faith before that and while you're using i mean was it something that i mean you still believed and was was it real to you before all of this before you it was died however many times yeah it was very real before um, but different. And it was very real during until a point. So around when I was 20, 23, 22, something like that. Um, I had just been trying to get sober for so many years. Um, nothing seemed to work. Um, and I, you know, heard so many times that, you know, God could heal you if you just have faith, that sort of thing that I got finally, fed up enough to say like I don't even believe in God anymore I don't think any you know I don't believe in addiction as a disease I don't believe in any of this crap I feel like I've just been because I had been put in treatment you know from an early age so I never really felt like I had a chance to um, decide for myself and I had always had counselors and psychiatrists tell me this is what's wrong with you and my parents and I was just like if y'all would just leave me the f alone then I'd be fine. It's only a problem because y'all are making it a problem. That was my mindset. And um, at that point, I had uh, a doctor giving me um, uh, a prescription for Suboxone, Xanax, and Adderall. Oh, man. Like a ridiculous amount. And so I was just selling them and taking them. That makes me mad, honestly. Because that, that that's irresponsible. Like, and I don't. I'm not talking about you. Per- I'm not talking about you personally, yeah. Jed. I'm talking about to any patient. Um, that that's irresponsible. Um, what is what is? Can you explain for the lay people those three drugs? What yeah. they're for? Because three drugs for what is for psych? For well, it's for- substance abuse and psych. Go ahead, say them again. Okay, yeah. I was going to say psych, but that wasn't the right. Go ahead, yeah. Judd. Okay. Say yeah, those so again. he, um, Annie, yeah, what else? Yeah, that was. Well, I know you just said Suboxone, Xanax. Yeah, and I'm. And what else? Uh, Suboxone, Xanax, and Adderall. Adderall. And it, my, it was <laughs> my, my numbers. Amphetamines. Listen, he, uh, restricted and listen drug. To the, he had me and, on, 
he had me on 32 milligrams of Suvox, and this was my daily prescription, 32 milligrams of Suvox and 90 milligrams of Adderall and six milligrams of Xanax. And he would let me, month by month, I would ask him, I'd be like, let me just do Valium this month or Ativan this month. He would let me swap out benzos. Do you understand this Insanely is why... irresponsible. This is why... Why? <laughs> this is why we have a heroin epidemic. This is why... Oh, yeah. Opiates are killing people. It's not necessarily the drugs. I mean, it is the drugs, but it's the it doctors is. who are prescribing the drugs. Now, I understand. Well, the insurance that, companies are paying those doctors like insane amount of money just to prescribe the, these drugs. So, well, that's true, and it's all run by the Food and Drug Administration. Ph- yeah, the which pharmaceutical is companies the, yeah. out, out of control, FDA. which that's a whole story in and of yeah, itself. We're not, we're not doing that this week. <laughs> but I just. Yeah. <laughs> That just the irresponsibility of a doctor who would do that just really bother. It really bothers me. You had a question, yep. babe. Yeah. So back to your your uh, what did you call it? The washing machine cycle of mm-hmm. your rehab centers. Are is there any legitimacy to a rehab center? Is there are there pros for it? Because Omar and I worked for one and it never felt like we were doing any good. <laughs> yeah. And so this is also, so like the history of treatment centers. So I'm obviously I work in them. I am a believer in them for a few reasons because there is, I was the type of drug addict that was not going to stop unless you locked me down. So they're, they're very good for stabilization right you you need to get stable so you can even make a rational decision um they really exploded during the crack epidemic um and people started getting court ordered to them and so they needed places to go and that's when insurance started paying so that's when they just popped up all over the place right and it became this big money thing so they went through we're finally coming back around to the people that were like, there was a, it was basically a gold rush and you can look up like the, um, especially in Florida and California and how just crooked it was and things like patient brokering where they would like go out and find drug addicts and be like, Hey, do you have insurance? And they'd be like, yeah. And they'd be like, okay, you know, come live at my house. I don't care if you relapse or whatever, we'll just keep running your insurance and just real sick, sick things. Um, the regulations are changing, so we're finally kind of moving away from that. Um, there are, that said, there there are good ones and there are bad ones, right. you know. Um, definitely some of them can do some harm. Um, they can do some good. It's just really like if you put it into perspective of what your expectations are, there's no place that you can send someone to get them sober or fix their life doesn't exist that's not a thing yeah as i say that makes it gonna be really hard because to say a good rehab even like what's the percentage of you know relapse or you know what's percentage of like you know staying clean like that's it's hard to like even the good ones it's it's it really depends on the person well yeah and statistics are so hard to pin down too because it's like how do you measure your success because most people even if they relapse you know how are they looking five years from now did they come back exactly yeah Um, all that stuff um and like i would get calls from my former rehabs and they'd be like how are you doing and i would like be high and i'm like i'm doing good man yeah thanks for checking in so um but it's one of those things too where it's like you just help everyone assuming they can be helped you know what I mean? You don't, it's, that's all you can do. And you never know, you know, like I had, you know, seeds planted all over the place from rehabs I went to that I didn't get it then, but years down the line, I like remembered what they said and it was, it was worthwhile. So it's, it's one of those, you just, you just help as if you would help anyone. And then, you know, the results going to be up to the person. Yeah, I think that when we look at the efficiency or effectiveness of rehab rehabilitation centers, it comes down to consistency and the long-term game plan. Um, yes. Because, you know, while 30 days or 28 days, depending on the insurance plan, up to three months is theoretically um, what we need in order to prevent 
provide enough stabilization for a person to end habits and be able to approach life from a different perspective, we really need longer term services. Like it's all about wraparound services. And I work for an insurance company and I'm going to talk in severe vagueness because for anonymity here, but we've been Did noticing you say reach this. around services wraparound. Ooh. It's a, it's an actual, it's an actual <laughs> term that is used in, yep. uh, professional places. Um, so <laughs> I'm going to talk in a lot of vagueness here, but uh, we've been noticing this as a, a major problem in that we have um, a lot of clients who just, it's a, con- it's, it's a continual door um, where it's, you know, they go, they get their 30 days of treatment, give them three months, they're right back. And this keeps mm-hmm. happening over and over and over again. And there's no real way of stepping in and getting things fixed. And so we've like proposed, like I got it again, I'm going to talk in vagueness. Someone has proposed somewhere of providing like case management through an insurance company along the process, working with every facility and the client and their families throughout and hoping that might produce a different outcome. But I don't know. Um, it's really hard when we look at the recidivism um, with substance abuse treatment. Because that, and it's it's fundamentally like the medical and insurance world just does not understand addiction. You can't, as a, you know, speak speaking generally as a whole. And as far as, and there's so, now the treatment is being really pushed towards, um, uh, medication management things like suboxone and they want that to be like they're starting to like make places do it um and they really just assume like you know 28 days and you're going to be fine it's like that is just so far and honestly sometimes that's what kills people is they they would like because the the most common thing for people to die is going to like a 7 14 28 day detox getting their tolerance back to baseline then they leave and try to do the same amount they did before they came in and they die that happens all of the time um and the the problem is the most effective thing that works is like go to like a 30-day treatment and then do six to nine to 18 months of structured sober living or something to where you it like a phase system where like you you're you start out with like limited um, different levels of care, step down services. Right, 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 right. And so it's, it's, you're slowly easing back into society. The, the problem, the biggest problem, and if I could fix it, it would just be making that affordable because it's not cheap, especially if you're under 18 and you can't support yourself. And the whole thing is like, if drug addicts had 10 grand, they, <laughs> they wouldn't be trying to get clean. A, um, but it's it's just not realistic and like the state run facilities are usually some of I've been to a few that are really good some most of them you'll have the model where they're just like work camps where like I went to one where they had contracts they're actually being sued now for labor law violations but Shut they up. had contracts with um like I worked in a cayenne pepper factory on an assembly line I built porta potties <laughs> uh worked at a billboard company this was all at the same treatment center they just had all these contracts where they're like hey we've got workers that you can pay 250 an hour like you know an hour and they don't pay us anything so like but we are quote paying for our treatment so we would just work 40 to 60 hours a week wow that's crazy so that's a model yeah or they'll have businesses um, that's kind of the teen challenge model is that they have um, thrift stores and they make candles and like leather goods. So you'll just go work for them. Yeah, that's the program that me and Elizabeth worked for uh, was a dream center. I mean, and they were great people, the people who ran it. And I would even almost consider that a successful rehab program. Although I mm-hmm. know a lot of people who obviously were still struggling who, you know, graduated from the program and others who maybe didn't graduate and are doing well, but you know, that like, like you said, they, they were teaching some decent life skills and it was faith based. It was, yeah, totally. it was faith based, you know, so however you want to like, you know, wherever, I mean, I, and so, it was good. 
Yeah, and some of those too. Like if you're if you're so that one that I'm speaking of, that one was really good. They were really um, in deep with the court system, and they the, your record would. I mean, there were people in there facing you know twenty, thirty years, and if you completed their program, you're good. And so like that's awesome. Um, some of these, if you're homeless or indigent, and you, like you will leave that. Like part one of the stipulations is you have to have a car, three thousand dollars in a bank account, and housing. So it's like you know. They can do some real good. The it's the the biggest problem I see is just affordable quality care for extended periods of time because it's it's a it's a it's so much more complex than go to this place for X amount of days and then like see you later. Yeah, and like, and also shout out good. to the Dream Center also because they were free and so it was like. Yeah, so, so they awesome. weren't making money from insurance companies or anything for having people there. And that's one of the things as sorry, as Seth was talking about just being in that world of insurance and looking at it from the mental health or, you know, the disease side of things of the addiction. It's scary because then it starts becoming a case. They looked as as cases and not people. And then it's almost like once you start sending somebody to these facilities represented by the insurance company almost seems like they're there watching their money more than they're there, you know, to be invested more into the lives of people. And speaking of faith-based and, you know, you've talked about how important that was with you and to keep you sober and your uh, whole sobriety road, how, how important do you think that is? Because we talked about how these, facilities or these programs or hit or miss, you know, they may or may not work. And you personally, it seems like you contribute a lot of your sobriety to your relationship with, you, you know, your creator with Jesus or whatever. And so I don't, I don't mean whatever. Jesus. Don't I don't, I don't whatever. mean Jesus. Or, exactly. Come I don't mean on, it. That, I don't mean, I don't mean it that way. <laughs> Show I'm just some saying. respect to the father. <laughs> Put some respect. Well, hey, hey, we're, hey respect, respect. We are actually, we started this early and by the way, saints just beat the Panthers. Um, yep. That's all that. So I'm good. <laughs> so, so wait, who was cheering for who, who won, who lost his top? Uh, the bottom? saints, dude. Saints all the way. <laughs> so anyway, so, yep. so Jesus loves you more apparently today. That's yeah, so, true. <laughs> Because I said whatever, he saw that coming. See, he knows all. (laughs) Anyway, um, that so that's my question though. I want I want to tie that into to recovery and staying sober because it's like how then if we don't want to like yes go to the programs. Programs are good, but they're not the answer. Yes, drugs drugs are good. They're not the answer. So what would you say somebody really needs to like? basically stay sober for the long haul like what's the what are the key ingredients would you say yeah how do you do it how do you get sober (laughs) um uh pretty much change your entire life (laughs) um yeah so this is another thing that there there are so and there's a whole movement now called alt recovery which um alternative so if that's supposed to signify yep but it's yeah it's alt recovery um Original. There are so so. What does that mean? You, you just got... start smoking weed instead? No, that's called California sober. <laughs> that's a thing too. Cali sober is you're sober but you smoke weed. That's another movement. Um, there's also high sobriety. Yeah, there's so so you got you've got twelve step traditional twelve step recovery, which I twelve step abstinence based recovery, which I am a personal believer that that's the best way. Um, well, I, there's so many caveats with it too. So if you are, this this is the other problem with the treatment industry was that everyone that came through the door of treatment, they will tell you that you are an alcoholic and a drug addict. That's not true. And what happened was then you had those people going into 12-step recovery meetings saying what they did to get sober, which five times out of 10 is a complete load of bullshit and it's not going to work for an actual alcoholic. And so that's how the waters kind of got polluted. Um, And then you have those people kind of spreading their little gospel of this is how I got sober. When in reality, that is not going to work for the, the 1% of the 10% that are just straight up alcoholic drug addicts. 
Um, I believe the only way you're going to get sober is by having a spiritual experience and working the 12 steps of recovery. Um, if you are now, I've also seen and met people that have had just straight up white light conversion experiences and never looked back. Um, I've seen some people, um, yeah, that's a tricky thing. I've it. It's also like my Christianity in in that like it's my beliefs have changed and they're always constantly evolving because primarily I don't want you to die, and my my goal is that if you are having a better quality of life and you're staying alive, then I'm okay with that, and hopefully at some point you will. Uh, like stay alive long enough to get wherever you're going and hopefully that goal is abstinence and 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 you know because a lot of people will still try to um dip their toes in the water and maybe do this or that and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't the whole thing is that like the best case scenario is it works the worst case scenario is you die so it's a pretty big it's a pretty big wager that you're doing um so for me personally, there was no way I was getting sober without spiritual help. No way at all. And really, that's what I attribute it to completely because I couldn't. The only reason I could tell you why I finally got it was that I didn't do anything. It really was God uh, like doing it for me. And then like initially, and then I do the work, the maintenance work, which is um, if, if I had to break it down to its simplest terms it's trust god clean house help others um and those are the 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 key helping others is the biggest key trusting god is the biggest key and uh cleaning house is the biggest key so it's taking constant inventory of my thoughts and actions um it's making sure to have a regiment of prayer and meditation and it's making sure to help spread the message when I'm asked and sometimes when I'm not. And that can look like sharing my story at a meeting, doing something like this, sponsoring other people. I get calls all the time from friends and family members asking for help. You know, the answer is always yes. Um, and that, you know, on a practical level, that does a ton of things. It the, lo- the farther away I get from the last time I got high, the easier it is to forget how shitty it was. And my mind will, you know, I'm five years sober and I'm by no means safe. It's harder in a lot of ways because like I'm a counselor, dude. Like I could smoke some weed. Like what's the big deal? Those are the thoughts I have. You know, it's always, you know, I have a monster inside of me that's always trying to kill me um, and it always will. So what when I work with someone who just smoked crack yesterday, I can look at them and be like, oh yeah, it sucks. That's what that's like. I remember that. Um, so that's the practical benefit of that. And then there's something about getting outside of yourself and helping someone else that I'm not thinking about my dumb stuff when I'm talking to you. Um, and then, you know, making sure that my spiritual maintenance is is maintained is the other big piece so that when when all else fails you know and sometimes before then but god can step in and and do for me what i can't do for myself right because sometimes sometimes i'm just physically you know like i can have all the phone numbers in the world but if i can't pick up the phone and call them then it's useless right sometimes you need that that extra push um so it it really it's you got to figure out if you truly believe that you are alcoholic that you that you do have this thing and I I do believe it to be a a disease and I I try not to get tripped up on the language it really doesn't matter it's it's some sort of um disorder of the that centers in the brain you know it is a brain disease um if you think that's you then then you figure out what you're willing to do, um, and then you just you know do that. It's it's that's that's probably the other problem with it is there is like you know 
a common solution, but there isn't. I mean, everybody's got to kind of find what works for them long term um, because it's easy to burn out on doing recovery and stuff like that. And you really got to figure out ways to keep it fresh in your mind. One of the things you said earlier too, Jed, um, I think is huge. And I don't, I'm not sure exactly where you put that in the triangle you were just discussing. Um, but holy fuck, I just lost it. I lost my question. Uh, trusting God, cleaning house, helping others. You lost it. Go ahead, Seth. I'm sorry. The well, something I found really important in what you shared is that really a, a large key to your recovery is your support system. Thank. That's and, what it was. That's exactly what it was. You even mentioned, <laughs> you know, how you can have all the phone numbers in your phone, but if you don't have the strength to call somebody, then it's not even, you know, you you, you got to have that. So you, we got to start with the at least the desire or, to change. Maybe not, yep. maybe not, you know, when we look at the stages of change, pre-contemplation, it's all, it's, it's part of the stages. So, um, yep. I think that was important and really having people you can reach out to, I think is, is super key. Right. And don't, and don't yeah, smoke and weed have, kids either. Cause that's where I was short term memory there, but that, that was my question. <laughs> you said, you said something about how, you know, just basically changing everything you do. And with that, mm-hmm. is it, is it also having friends who surround you like Seth was saying support system that was kind of the same direction I was going yes like, that yeah I'm glad you brought that up too um because it's um and it, it's incredible too so like I went to this treatment center in 2005 and um and if you know anything about rehab stats they're they're not good but out of that treatment center in 2005 there are five of us that are still best friends um one of them was the best man in my wedding. Um, if I ever have a kid, he'll be the godfather. Um, yeah, like we've just, we've, and only one of them, uh, Dirty Mike, he's been on our show. He's stayed sober the whole time. The rest of us have gone in and out, in and out, but now we're all um, sober. And we all live in the same city now. We were, we were all from different states, so it's pretty crazy. But yes, I have people in my life that it, it would be extraordinarily difficult for me to fall off the map these days without people stopping by, calling me, where are you, what are you doing? If I show up somewhere and I look high, you know, or something, they're going to add, you know what I'm saying? Like I have a very strong system of people that will call me on my shit and I allow them to and I call them on their shit and that that's how that works. I think that's so important to have people that... If you don't show up, they're going to call you and say, where are you at? You know, what are you doing? Are you okay? All that. Transparency and accountability. Yes. Cool. Very cool. Very cool. <laughs> yes. Thank you. No, yeah, yeah, I, you, were, you were muted. I, I was <laughs> muted, yeah. And uh, honestly, Jed, um, it's uh, 4.45. I'm not sure you said it's about the time for you to go, but, I mean, it's been a pleasure. I've I've really had you on. We've got covered a lot in a short amount of time, like – really a lot revolved around your story. I love what you're doing. I really, every time we get a chance to talk to you, um, you know, you bring your A game, whether we're talking conspiracy theories <laughs> or, you know, or, or mental health. And so, um, yeah, you got to have crazy hobbies too. That's the thing. <laughs> but yeah. And if anyone, yeah. So like my, um, my show is church and other drugs, but if anybody, out there needs help with anything or has questions or what do I do or anything like that, anything related to this, um, email me at church and other drugs at gmail.com. Um, or you can reach out if it's a super personal or you need me quick, reach out to Omar and get like my cell number or, um, messenger, um, any of that. Um, please reach out anytime. I'm always there for that kind of stuff. Yeah. And obviously this has been a very short conversation. We've just kind of started the conversation. Hopefully that's the biggest thing. If you're hearing this right now and you're struggling and you think you might need help, get help, you know, talk to somebody that you trust. You know, if you don't have that, please reach out to, like you said, either Jed or myself. Um, obviously we have our Patreon. We have, we don't have to join the Patreon. If you need help, please reach out You know, to our, our Facebook directly. You can find us, you know, fade to gray podcast on, on Facebook or on Instagram and, or 
just get help, you know, like, uh, and, um, it's going to be hard, but it's worth it. And so Jed, I appreciate you. Seth, you had something. I heard, I heard that side. Yeah. Yeah. I sighed. No, I was going to say, you know, say we just, we say, Oh, get help. You know, and I just want to mention, you might not be ready to say get help at the moment. Um, and I want you to know that that's okay, but yeah, but you know, there is a lot to be said in having the conversation, reaching out and asking yes. for help. You may not know the right answer or know that you need help at this time. But if you think that potentially talking about this could be supportive, I want you to do that too. Because as we talk, as we share things, we learn more about ourselves and more about our path and the things that are going to be best for us. And Jed, I just want to thank you so much for coming on for this conversation. Yeah, for sure, man. Um, Love y'all, man. I appreciate the t- the um, the chance. Yeah. And and as he mentioned, um, reach out to Jed if needed. Until next time. Yeah. Yep. See you guys later. Thanks, man. What is up, Fade Gray friends and family? It's your boy Omar here, and I got to edit this episode. I want to personally thank each one of you for listening to our new Binge Bowl series on health, as well as Dan Coke for this dope new intro and outro music. If you like what you hear and need new music for your podcast or small business or big business with that, um, he has a website, dancoke.net. That's D-A-N-K-O-C-H dot net with lots of quality tunes to choose from. Go check them out. And if you're enjoying this health series as much as we have, please don't hesitate to let us know. Give us a five-star review. Hit, hit that like button and a comment. And if you're interested in becoming a friend and family of Fade to Grey, um, you can do that at patreon.com. So please come check us out. And have a happy new year. Stay healthy, my friend.